One of the most captivating sights in the land of Israel is the Sea of Galilee. I remember the very first time I saw it on a bus going through the hills of Upper Galilee, Lower Galilee, came over a hill, saw the Sea of Galilee, and literally it took my breath away. Not only because of its beauty, but knowing what had happened there at that site, the Sea of Galilee. It's really not a sea at all. It's a freshwater lake. But it is called the Sea of Galilee because Jewish people used to refer to any body of water as yam in Hebrew or sea. Even a little puddle of water was called yam or sea to distinguish it from flowing water like in a stream or a river. So that's how this freshwater lake got its name as the Sea of Galilee. It is approximately 12 miles long from north to south and seven and a half miles wide from east to west. And it sits at about 685 feet below sea level. The land on the west side of the lake rises considerably with numerous hills and mountains that form upper and lower Galilee. And the land on the east side also rises considerably to form the Golan Heights. So that means that the Sea of Galilee is down in a bowl, as it were. That is very significant to keep in mind when you read in the Gospels about storms on the Sea of Galilee. Because the land to the west has mountains bisected by a series of small east-west valleys, whenever there is wind in the area, it funnels down these valleys and rockets toward the Sea of Galilee. Remember now, the elevation of this land to the west averages about 2,000 feet above sea level, and the Sea of Galilee is 685 feet below sea level. Therefore, the strong winds that come off the Mediterranean funnel toward the Sea of Galilee and pound the surface of the water. These winds seem to come out of nowhere. It can be a beautiful day, glorious day, and the winds come out of nowhere, and when they hit, they can create, create massive storm conditions on the lake. It's just like a brawling storm out in the ocean. We see an example of one of those in the text to which we come this morning in Mark chapter 4. If you are not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament, the fourth chapter. And please follow along as I read verses 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. <clears throat> On the same day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
This is another one of the astounding miracles that Jesus performed when he was here on earth. And it is probably one of his most famous miracles. There are people in our world who know very little about Jesus, but they know that it is reported that he calmed a raging storm with just a word. Maybe that's because of some of the famous paintings that are in existence depicting these scenes. Why does Mark put this miracle here in his gospel account? Up until now, this entire chapter has recorded the teachings of Jesus in the form of parables. But right here at the end of chapter 4, we have a record of a miraculous deed. So it forces us to ask a question. What is Mark doing with the way he has connected these stories together? I believe that Mark is trying to show us that Jesus spoke with authority and he acted with authority. His words were unique, the first part of chapter 4, and his actions were unique here at the end of chapter 4. He not only spoke with authority, he acted with authority. He not only said the things the Messiah was to say, he did the things the Messiah was to do. To say it another way, his words were powerful and his deeds were powerful. That, I believe, is why Mark puts this record together the way he does. Jesus did many miracles, as you know, and it also prompts a question for us. Why did Jesus do these miracles? They weren't just random. He had a purpose, obviously. Why did Jesus carry out his miracles? As you search through the gospel records, you can answer that question in the following way. Jesus carried out his miraculous deeds for at least three reasons. Compassion, validation, and salvation. Number one, Jesus did miracles because of his compassion. He loved people. He hurt to see people hurting. His heart broke when he saw the devastation caused by living in a fallen sin-cursed world. He was moved with compassion when he saw people suffering the ravages of sickness and disease and death. You will recall that he wept at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew what he was going to do, and yet when he came upon that scene and saw how heartbroken Mary and Martha were at the death of their brother, he wept. He entered into the anguish of other people. He was, as the prophet predicted, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. At the end of Matthew chapter 9, we are told this about Jesus. Listen to these words from Matthew's gospel. I'll just read them to you. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion for people. He did his miracles because of compassion. Beloved, let's not have an imbalanced view of Jesus and an imbalanced view of ministry by assuming that the only thing important is the soul and people's eternal destiny. Certainly it is true that the most important issue is a person's eternal destiny. 
And Jesus said the same thing when he said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So Jesus emphasized that the most important issue is a person's eternal destiny. But he didn't emphasize that with a complete disregard for temporal suffering. He ministered to the body and the soul in his ministry. He did his miracles because of compassion. Secondly, Jesus did his miracles as a validation. What I mean is, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and his miracles validated his claim. Hebrew Scripture stated what the Messiah would do. Hebrew Scripture gave many prophecies about what the Messiah would do, what his miraculous works would look like. So Jesus performed his miracles as a validation of his claims. He fulfilled prophecies in Hebrew Scripture that stated what the Messiah would do. You could say it this way. His miracles were part of his credentials. They were a validation. Thirdly, Jesus performed miracles for salvation. What I mean is, Jesus performed miracles to point people to the fact that he was God in human flesh, and his power was able to deliver not only from sickness, but from sin. The goal of Jesus' miracles was to point people to their greatest need, which is salvation. His miracles were intended to give people evidence that he is the one sent from God to save us from our sins. That's why the Apostle John recorded several specific miracles in his gospel account. He said this at the end of his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's it. That's why Jesus did his miracles. He did them so people would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And when people truly come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they find eternal life and salvation in him. So Jesus did his miracles for at least those three reasons. Compassion, validation, and salvation. The miracle that we are going to consider this morning falls into categories one and two. What I mean is, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he did it out of compassion for his fearful disciples. But I think it would be safe to say that he also did it primarily as a validation to strengthen the faith of his disciples. That becomes clear as we, as we see their response to this particular miracle. So Jesus did his miracles for those three reasons, compassion, validation, and salvation. Thus far in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus cast out demons. We saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law, heal multitudes that were brought to him, cleanse a leper, heal a paralytic. In the case of Peter's mother-in-law and in the case of the leper, Jesus did something especially extraordinary in the midst of performing that, those miracles. In the case of the leper, Jesus actually reached out and touched the man. That was unheard of in that day. No one touched a leper, but Jesus did. 
We see the same thing in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, who was severely sick with a life-threatening fever. Jewish halakha forbade touching persons with many kinds of fever. But just as Jesus did with the leper, he reached out and touched that dear lady to heal her. In both cases, the result was the same. The touch did not defile the healer, but healed the defiled. So we have seen already the ability of Jesus to heal leprosy, the ability to heal a life-threatening fever, the ability to cast out demons with the word, the ability to heal a paralytic who was bedridden. All of those are sort of in the physical realm of people, and now we see his power in the natural realm over wind and storm. So with that as background, let's consider Mark's account of this famous incident. Verse 35, Mark tells us, On the same day when evening had come, he, the he of course is Jesus, Jesus said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. As I'm sure most of you know, much of the ministry of Jesus took place on and around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, we are told in Matthew 11.20 that most, not many, most of the miracles of Jesus took place within a three-village triangle on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee. Most of his miracles took place in that tiny region. That is remarkable when you stop to think about it. Jesus did so many miracles that according to John 21, 25, the world could not contain all the books if all the miracles had been recorded. That's how many miracles Jesus did. Uncountable number of miracles. Yet according to Matthew eleven twenty, we discover that he did most of them on and around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, more than once, he specifically calmed a ferocious storm on this specific body of water. This was one of those occasions. Now, the disciples were used to going back and forth across this lake. After all, several of them were fishermen by trade. And with that trade, they were able to earn a middle to upper middle class level of economic existence. This was their trade. This was their This was their life's work. Furthermore, Jesus took them back and forth across the lake as he carried out his ministry to the various people groups who were on different sides of the lake. The north or northwest side, primarily Jewish people. Over on the east side, in the Decapolis, the ten cities, primarily Gentile people. And Jesus had gone back and forth already several times. So traveling in a boat was nothing unusual for these disciples. But this time would be different. Verse 36 tells us, Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. As I mentioned during the introduction to this message, because of the location of this lake, it does experience some brutal storms. It's difficult to picture that or conceive of that when you see the lake in its normal condition. And I say normal because these storms are, I wouldn't say rare, but not completely uncommon either. Most of the time, 
It is quiet, calm, serene, peaceful, beautiful. But when the winds beat down upon it, the lake can churn with waves that are just about as big as those produced on the open ocean. That's what happened on this occasion. This verse says that the storm was so severe that the, we, the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Interestingly, Mark uses the Greek word mega here in this verse. We're familiar with that word. We use it in English all the time. We talk about something being mega, huge, immense, large. So this was a mega storm, Mark says. The boat was being beaten by the waves. It was filling with water so that it was about to sink. That is a stunning scene, but, but not one that is surprising. We've all seen, I'm sure everyone in this room has seen, whether in person or at least on television or video footage, of a boat being tossed around in the storm. We've all seen that. So it's, that's not surprising. What is surprising is what we are told in the next verse. Verse 38 says, But Jesus was in the stern asleep on a pillow. Jesus was asleep. Can you imagine that? Remember now, Mark has just told us, without exaggeration, this was a mega storm. Waves crashing into, uh, uh, against and into the, the boat so that it was beginning to sink, and Jesus is sound asleep. Jesus was so weary and so worn out that he was sleeping right through this violent storm. What a tremendous glimpse of his humanity. He was truly and genuinely human. It's easy for us to forget that. Because we want to protect the precious truth of his deity, especially in our day and age in which the cults attack the deity of Christ, whether Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, or it seems that virtually all the cults attack the deity of Christ. And because we want to protect the precious truth of his deity, it is easy for us to minimize his full and genuine humanity. We fail to appreciate its significance. Jesus was a man. Thus, he became hungry, he became thirsty, he grew tired. And boy, did he ever get tired. Jesus gave and gave and gave of himself. He walked the dusty roads of the ancient land of Israel. He climbed the hills. He experienced the pounding sun of the Middle East. He interacted with people, talked with them, healed them, answered them, ministered to them. And this often went on all day and well into the evening. We saw this back in chapter 1. Do you remember what Mark told us? Chapter 1, verse 32. says, At evening when the sun had set. So this is, this is late in the day. Not just evening like, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock dinner time. Sun had set. They brought him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And then the very next verse, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, 
He went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. With that kind of schedule, no wonder Jesus was exhausted. You see, the ministry of Jesus went on throughout the days and usually into the evenings. And then Mark tells us there that the very next morning after a very late night, we don't know how late, he rises way before daylight to go pray. So the pace and the intensity wore him out. If you have never been involved in working with people, then you probably don't understand and grasp how draining it can be. It is easy to assume that manual labor is far more taxing and strenuous. And that is the case in some situations. But working with people, interacting with people, giving to people, ministering to people can be extremely draining and tiring. And that's what we see in the life of our Lord. He was so exhausted that even a wild storm, howling, water beating against the boat, did not awaken him. But the disciples were finally able to do so. Verse 38 of Mark 4 continues. It says, But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now remember, these were experienced fishermen and experienced boatsmen. Several of them had spent a lot of time on the water. So this, this must have been quite a storm if they thought they were about to die. They knew how to handle a boat. And they knew how to swim if they fell out of a boat. But they were convinced that if their boat continued to fill with water and it sank or if it capsized, they would not be able to get to the shore alive. That tells you something about the intensity of this storm. And it tells you something about the level of exhaustion our Lord was in to be sleeping right through this storm. This was no small breeze. This was a howling wind that was beating upon the water with such force that the waves were about to engulf the boat. So the disciples awakened Jesus with their shouting plea to save their lives. Verse 39, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The storm had been enormous, so the calm that followed was described by Mark as a great, or here's the word again, mega calm. That's the word that Mark uses again. There was a, a, a mega calm. The wind stopped instantly. And the waves didn't slowly subside. They stopped immediately with an eerie calm. Try to picture that. It's hard for us to picture because I don't know that we've ever experienced that. Usually if you're in a windstorm, it slowly dissipates. It doesn't just shut off like you turn off a switch. Or, or if you're out in the water and you have waves beating on a boat, it's not like all of a sudden the, the water becomes glass. So there was this eerie calm, this mega calm. How did Jesus do this? Mark says he simply rebuked the winds and the sea. The sovereign Lord spoke and his creation immediately 
responded. Why did Jesus do this? He did this to strengthen the faith of his men. That's, what, that's why Mark tells us what he does in the very next verse, in verse 40. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? We need to realize that the disciples were convinced that this man, Jesus, was a unique rabbi. He obviously was a unique teacher. And notice that's how they referred to him there in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So they, they knew he was a unique teacher. And they were probably even convinced that he was the Messiah. But it is doubtful that they understood at this point that he was God in human flesh. That is not something that the Jewish people saw in their scriptures and in the descriptions of the Messiah. It's there. It's there in Hebrew Scripture, but because of their settled conviction that there is only one God, they couldn't hardly comprehend that this one God is composed of three distinct persons. So the idea that the Messiah would be divine was something that was extremely difficult to grasp. The deity of Jesus was a concept that may not have even entered their mind. So Jesus had to get them to see it. He had to get them to understand it. He had to get them to believe it. He had to strengthen their faith, awaken their faith, and that is exactly what he did on this occasion. Verse 41 tells us, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the previous verse, Jesus acknowledged that they were fearful. But now Mark tells us that they feared exceedingly. By the way, this is the third time that Mark uses the Greek word mega in this story. There was a mega storm followed by a mega calm, which resulted in a mega fear. Now, I don't know if Mark intends a little humor at this point. But it is sort of funny to realize that they were very fearful in the storm and they were exceedingly fearful once it stopped. Which is more scary? Being on a boat in the middle of a lake during a violent storm or being in the same boat with God? According to Mark's description here, having a storm outside your boat isn't nearly as scary as having God inside your boat. Did you catch their question? Who can this be? Who is this guy? We thought we knew him. He's our teacher, our rabbi. Who is this? That would indicate, as I was saying a moment ago, that they didn't have at this time a complete or full grasp of who Jesus really was. Matthew's account of this event records the disciples saying, What kind of man is this? Well, this was no mere man. Yes, this, this was God in human flesh. He was a man, all right, but no mere man. God in human flesh. And that is what this miracle was intended to convey. There is no clearer demonstration of the deity of Jesus in the New Testament than this story. No clearer demonstration of the deity of Jesus anywhere in the New Testament than what we see here. As the disciples thought about this event... 
I'm sure there were some passages that had to explode in their minds if they already knew those passages. And if they didn't yet know those passages, when they did run across them later, they would begin to realize the significance of what Jesus had done. The passages to which I'm referring are found in Hebrew Scripture, in the Psalms. Let me show you a few of them. Back up with me to Psalm 29. Let's look at three or four Psalms. Psalm 29. And we read these statements in light of what we've just seen there in Mark's Gospel. Psalm 29, verse 1. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now watch this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And by the way, notice that in your translation, the word Lord there is Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the translator's way of letting us know that this is not the Hebrew word Adonai, which means sovereign one. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H, all caps in English, L-O-R-D. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice that had calmed the wind and water was the voice of God. The very voice of Yahweh. When Jesus spoke, it was the voice of God. Look at Psalm 89. Turn to the right, several psalms, to Psalm 89. Another statement along these same lines. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 6. Verse 6 says, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? And again, notice, all caps there. Who in the heavens can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to Yahweh? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around Him, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Yahweh? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That is exactly what Jesus had done. And this text says that it is the work of Yahweh, the God of hosts, to still the waves. This was the connection Jesus wanted his men to make in their hearts and in their minds as they thought about what he had done that night on the Sea of Galilee. Skip over to Psalm 93, just a few psalms to the right. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns, again, all caps, Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yahweh is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Yahweh. The floods 
have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord, or Yahweh on high, is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. That is exactly what Jesus proved on that night. His voice was mightier than the mighty waves of the sea. And then one more example, Psalm 107. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. It says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of Yahweh and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, and are at their wits' end. Then they cry out to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. If the disciples already knew these psalms, and there's a good chance they did, being devout Jewish men, If they already knew these psalms, then surely the words of these psalms had to explode in their minds as they thought about what Jesus had done in calming the storm. And if perchance they didn't yet know these psalms, when they did run across them in the future in their reading of Scripture, they would begin to realize the significance of what Jesus had done. This was no mere man that had calmed the winds and the sea. This was Yahweh the God of hosts. Did the the disciples ever get the message? Did they ever make the connection? Did Did they ever get to the point where they understood and were convinced that Jesus was not only a great rabbi, a great teacher, Jesus was not only the Messiah, but also God in human flesh? Did they ever make it there in their minds? Yes, they did. Turn turn over to Matthew 16 as we begin to wind down this morning. As you go back into the New Testament, stop at the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This event here in Matthew 16 is later than the one we saw in Mark 4. So this is down the road a little ways in their journey. And as Jesus begins preparing his men for his departure, he pulls them aside Verse 13 tells us, into the region of Caesarea Philippi. That is way up north in Israel. Up near Mount Hermon, the the mountains up in the northern part of Israel. So verse 13 tells us, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus knew that the disciples were out among people, and he knew that the disciples were aware of you know, the scuttlebutt and all the talk that went on in society. So he says, you're out there, men. What's the, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Who, who do they say that I am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The views of the multitudes were inadequate. None of those were accurate. 
So it was extremely important that the disciples have the accurate picture. If these were the men who were going to be representing Jesus once he left, then it was crucial that their understanding of him be accurate and complete, full. So Jesus presses the issue. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you, who do you say that I am? Okay, that's what the, the crowd says, the multitude says. That's what people say. But what is your assessment? At this point, men, at this point in the journey, after all this time that we've worked together, served and ministered together, what's your assessment? We find from the way that Peter replies that by this point their view was accurate. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter affirmed two monumental realities in this great confession. Two. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing he said. The English word Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach. All three of those words mean anointed one or Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. He was the one predicted throughout Hebrew Scripture. He was the one the prophets spoke of in their writings. Peter answered as the spokesman of the group, You are the Christ. But that's not all Peter said. He also added, notice, the Son of the living God. This great confession even goes beyond the first one. I mean, it's one thing to say that Jesus is the Messiah. It's even more of an assertion to say that he is the son of the living God. That is a title of deity. That's the very title in John 5 that Jesus used that caused the Jewish people around to try to stone him for blasphemy. They all knew what that title meant. It's a title of deity. So that means that the disciples had come to understand that Jesus was no mere man. He was human, but he wasn't only human. He was also divine. But they also knew that he was a distinct person from the Father. That's why Peter used this phrase, the Son of the living God. Even though Peter couldn't completely grasp it, even though Peter couldn't completely understand it, or or the other disciples either, Peter could state what the disciples had come to believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe it in more than just an intellectual way? More than just mental assent? Your eternal destiny depends on your relationship with Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe in him wholeheartedly, fully, and genuinely? Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head this morning, take just a couple minutes to contemplate what we've seen this morning in that tremendous story in Mark chapter 4. It's a familiar story to many, I know, but just think about it. Put yourself in the disciples' position in the middle of the night, dark, violent storm, Jesus sound asleep. And then in an instant, after awakening him and him speaking, in an instant, 
an immediate, eerie calm. Think about the display of his power over wind and storm and sea. And think about what that shows us and reveals to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a very exalted picture of him. One that we would do well to lock into and embrace. So, child of God, let's see Jesus in that way. As the sovereign one in control of the storms, in control of nature, in control of life. And then if you're here today and you're not a child of God, you need to see Jesus in that way as the sovereign Lord who demands that you humble yourself before him and embrace him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That means more than just intellectual assent to facts. That means more than just mental assent. Saying, oh yeah, I believe that's who Jesus is. It's a belief that entrusts your life to him. A belief that surrenders your life to him. However the Spirit of God prompts you to respond to the Word of God this morning in this majestic picture of Jesus, I, I urge you to respond in that way. Father, as we close our time together this morning, contemplating, meditating on this powerful story, as I said, it's one familiar to many of us, familiar scene, and we would pray that you would not allow, that we would not allow our familiarity to rob us or steal from us just the wonder that ought to be created in our hearts and minds when we contemplate this familiar story. To think about what it depicts and what it shows us of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he really is. So, Father, for those of us who are your children, who do know the Lord Jesus, may it enhance our view and perspective of him. May it strengthen our faith, awaken our faith to, to trust him, to trust him in the midst of the most violent storm, and Father, for those present in our midst and surely in a crowd this size, there are some, those who are not right with you, who, who really cannot rightly claim you as Father and the Lord Jesus as their Savior. May this powerful picture of the Lord Jesus draw them to humility, to repentance, to simple childlike faith, to receive the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, to come to know him and begin living for him, loving him, following him, obeying him, and serving him. Use your word in our lives as you see fit. This is our joint or corporate prayer together. In Jesus' name, amen.